Welcome to the Online for Authors podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmer. This episode is featuring Guy Morris. Guy Morris has led an extraordinary life. After escaping an abusive childhood at the age of 13 to become a homeless runaway, Guy worked alongside migrant workers before he earned three degrees by the age of 27. Retired from a 36-year leadership career, Guy has released three pulse-pounding thrillers inspired by true stories, actual technologies, true global politics, and history. His debut as an indie author was in 2021. Guy strives to write books that thrill, educate, and inspire thoughtful dialogue on genuine issues facing humanity. Welcome, Guy Moore. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you. Tell me a bit more about this homeless to earning three degrees. I came from a rather, I'll just say messed up home. And I had ran away a few times before um, I, I left and was a homeless runaway for thir- 13 for several months. I ultimately went back briefly, uh, but then left home again when I was 15. So I was a functionally illiterate runaway kind of street kid. And that's quite young. 15 is quite young. I was quite young. I I earned money by working with migrant workers. Uh, I did odd jobs. I worked in construction. I did all kinds of ditch digging. You know, I I did whatever it took to eat. Uh, Ultimately, through a series of of, of what I would only call as miracles, I had the opportunity, was invited to go back to college. Now, I was so functionally illiterate, I had to get my wife at the time to help me fill out the application because I didn't understand it all. Yeah, I do this. Okay. So... But I was determined. I, I knew that that was my, my, you don't get many shots in life. And that was my one shot. So I. Did you I, marry young too, to have your wife filling out? I was married very young. Uh, I, I married at 18. So this is about the time I was 19 that this happened. My goodness. Okay. And um, so I did, I, but I had to work at the time. So I, I basically worked and went to school and and I slept about four hours a night for about five years. I ultimately went past the the illiteracy piece to, I actually graduated with honors. I was on the Dean's list. I got a scholarship to go back to that school for graduate school. I was actually accepted into Harvard for graduate school at the time, but I couldn't afford the the move and, and, and the tuition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and bar, part of the, uh, the grad, the scholarship and everything else was based on the fact that I had developed a, I was in economics, finance, I was in um, technical fields. And I had developed a macroeconomic model that outperformed the Federal Reserve, uh, all of the big banks, all the major universities by a wide margin. Well, at the time, we were going through a similar period where a very high unemployment, very high inflation. It was an erratic gross national product performance. And all the major banks were having a hard time understanding how all these things fit together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had developed an algorithm that the Federal Reserve used for a decade after that, that basically tied a lot of these erratic changes to the productivity of technology just entering okay. into our marketplace at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were basically counting the sales of that technology, but not counting how that technology would evolve the marketplace after the sale. Mm-hmm. And that's what I had developed. I got hired by IBM and then went on to a number of other companies. I worked with Oracle and Microsoft, and I worked with a big oil company for a number of years, about 13 years. I was with an international oil company. Occidental um, Petroleum. I was there when Armand Hammer was still the chairman. Okay. And uh, we, uh, I was actually in the boardroom uh, the day that Armand Hammer went into a tide raid. Our research group had brought forward some research that indicated that CO2 emissions uh, were being linked to the um, decrease in ice shelves in the, in the uh, North Sea. 
and, and the Arctic. And Armin Hammer basically went into this spittle, red-faced tirade and threatened to fire anybody who ever brought this up again. I had a lot of interesting experiences. Was uh, flown into Colombia one time when we had a the uh, the FARC a terrorist group had uh, kidnapped one of our executives, and we were there to try and negotiate his release, which meant basically bulletproof cars and not leaving our hotel and 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 being under twenty four seven security. Mm-hmm. So through my career, I had a lot of interesting experiences. I try to take a lot of that and weave it into the characters of my books. I would really like to read them. You've definitely got the, the genuine issues facing humanity and all of these like wielding in two stories and technologies and politics and history. Where did you get the drive to write in the first place? I want 16 hour days, seven days a week in my, my career. I have a poor relationship with leisure. Uh, I, I just don't relax well. Um, You're a so, workaholic, right? Uh, I, I've been accused. <laughs> it's not a preferred term, right? But yes, you have, um, I love how you put it. You have a problem. I, I prefer highly motivated. But honestly, <laughs> one of the things that, that really sparked my imagination and, and stuck into my soul in college was reading about Renaissance men. And men in the Renaissance were fluid in science and politics and art and 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 a number of different things. They tried to be really well balanced in their viewpoint of the world and and how it worked. And so there was always a part of me that said, well, my my career is over here, but I also want to do this, this and this and this. So it led me to, I earned a Coast Guard charter captain's license for a while. And I used to live on a yacht and uh, I used to take people on sailing trips on my yacht and and I went diving with sharks and, and I've been in recording studios and I've done recording. I wrote songs for Disney records for a while. And so I, I like to have a broad level of experience. And so I think that Renaissance seed, as it grew when my son was young, I wanted to write. And I, and I realized I enjoyed that process of taking facts and creating fiction. The Curse of Cortez, because it took me well over a decade just to understand the facts um, uh, I would work till oftentimes 11, 1130 at night. I was too tired in my head to do any more spreadsheets or PowerPoints or things of that nature, but I was too wired to go to sleep. Yeah. And that so, one side of the brain actually shuts off when you get to that point of being too tired. But if you're not yeah. sleeping, boy, that creativity just floods in, doesn't it? Exactly. So that's when I would start doing research and I would do writing on the research and, and I would stay up to oftentimes one or two o'clock in the morning just because I was so consumed with the things I was learning that um, that sparked it. Now, started the Curse of Cortez years ago. Uh, and it started as a short story for my son because he was a, a big reader at the time and, and he, he loved action and thrillers and like pirates and treasures. So I thought, well, I'll, I have computers. I have a lot of time as a single parent staying at home. Um, I'll, I'll try and use some of that time for that. That's based on a true abandoned billion dollar plunder of Henry Morgan and how over a period of 10 years of research, I connected that to the Mayan 5,000 year calendar and the Mayan creation myth. It was a journey I didn't expect. Uh, I was just trying to figure out, okay, it's hard to lose 30 tons of stuff, three ships and 500 souls without somebody finding something. Well, in fact, in 1911, a guy named Mitchell Hedges did find something. Mm -hmm. And a few months before he disappeared with uh, roughly about $250 million worth of gold today, um, he claimed that he had found Atlantis. And that was a clue to help me understand. The real question I was trying to understand for that book was, 
what traumatized a guy like Henry Morgan, who was ruthless, vicious, greedy, bloodthirsty, well-known reputation for being a, a cruel dude, what would traumatize him so badly that he would give up, abandon a billion-dollar plunder, and then burn his logbook before he died? What was he so ashamed of? And that journey took me to a number of different places. It connected me to an island that Uncle Edward had conquered. On that same island, there was an Inquisition massacre that ended a 2,000-year pilgrimage. And the more I looked at what was could be the reason why people were canoeing 50 miles to this island, that led me to the Mayan calendar, the Mayan creation myth, and that ultimately led me to their end-of-the-world prophecy. So... It's a uh, book trip called uh, Curse of Cortez, one of their favorite 25 books of 2021, and they called it Indiana Jones Meets Da Vinci Code. My books are heavily infused with a lot of factual realities. So while I write fictional characters and plots, underneath that is a wealth of true experiences, true events, true technology, science, politics, religion. I'm somewhat politically agnostic, so I take pokes at everybody, um, you know, which is, you know, to be fair. To be fair, it's so, one of my questions actually was, what is this folks the bear when it comes to politics and religions? My espionage series are also uh, more contemporary. They're more dealing with current day issues in, in artificial intelligence, how AI and, and our cyber vulnerabilities and cyber warfare, how AI is being used in weapons and other things, and our political politics, corruption and politics and religion around the world. The Snow, the Snow Chronicles series, uh, it's SNL, but I pronounce it Snow. The true story that's sparked that series, that entire series, was uh, years ago, I stumbled onto an Associated Press article that um, indicated that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia. Well, that, that particular laboratory is a well-known NSA spy lab. So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, a spy program escaped the NSA spy labs at Sandia. And I, oh, oh. Well, that, that somebody's either going to get fired for that, that typo or someone's going to get fired for that slip. And and, mm -hmm. um, and so I spent several months fired or to, something else. eh? Yeah. Several that I said, that seems like something that shouldn't have gotten out onto a press article. You'd think. So I spent several months, but I couldn't find anything else. Nobody ever spoke anything else about it. There was no other news bulletins, but I spent several months trying to figure out three things, how a program could actually physically escape the NSA labs. Mm -hmm. what must it have been designed to do? What may it have been designed to do that it had that amazing capability, which um, implied a lot of different things. And then thirdly, what happened that, that made it want to escape? And uh, at the time I, I had a, a close friend who was a film producer and he said, well, let's make this into a webisode series and pilot out the idea. Oh, and I so like this. We, so we did that. Um, we, we, had, we were, had fans all over the world, including the flight dire, uh, director of flight operations for NASA. And uh, two weeks, a studio signed an option. Two weeks before they were going to execute the option, two FBI agents showed up at my door. Yikes, um, we're not going to find this anywhere. Apparently, they were a little bit perturbed that I had, I had uncovered something they thought should be top secret. So that program is a, now a character in my two espionage series named Sylvia, Sophisticated Language Virtual Intelligence Algorithm. And Sylvia has now matured to singularity and decoded end time prophecy. And now escape implies both intent and intelligence. Okay. Uh, and the ability to escape implies that the program had the ability to move itself and then erase the trail of where it had moved. Because when programs move, there's usually a, a program log that keeps track of all those things. 
So it was designed to not only move itself, but the ability to then erase its trail to so it could stay invisible. And, and when was this? When did you find that out? This was in the 90s. So it was way ahead of our time. And one of the attributes I had given to the program at the time, I, I basically went through my studio and I went through the tech center and I said, well, if I were to design my perfect spy program, what would I want to do? And I said, well, I'd, I'd want to turn on my web, turn on somebody's web camera but not turn on the light so they didn't know it was on or turn on their, their turn which on really their, happens. We know now that really happens, right? Well, that was the point was, and one of the things I had attributed to the Sylvia was the ability to do, do deep fake video technology to basically take your voice or your, your digital image, digitize it, and then make you say something you didn't say. Now it turned out that in 2016, there was a CNN reported a story about how Russia had hacked a CIA cyber toolkit. And in that cyber toolkit was virtually every single one of the spy program attributes that I had given to the Sylvia, including the deepfake video technology. That toolkit was then sold by Russia on the dark web to our enemies, to um, cr criminal organizations, to thugs in Africa, anybody who basically wanted to misuse these tools now to basically spy on their neighbors and create disinformation. Some amazingly moral and ethical actions happening there, hey? Yeah. Okay, so what are the titles of the books related to this? Uh, Swarm yeah. is the first one. And right. Swarm, the title Swarm will actually deal with a DARPA weapon that's actually in development today. Okay. Um, and But we'll introduce the Sylvia, introduce all the main characters to the series. The The weapon system is actually a weaponized drone that, that flies in swarms of 1,000 to 10,000. Um, okay. Now, if you can imagine a swarm of hornets coming at you, yeah. you, you really can't fight them because they're all around. They're th three-dimensional. Now, imagine that those those hornets are now 18-inch drones um, with that are weaponized and with explosives. It, it's really sort of an indefensible kind of, you know, it's meant for urban warfare, and it's really hard to defend against those. Yeah. And we've got governments actually working on that technology. Yeah. That was the premise for the first book. And in the second book, The Last Arc, the Sylvia has now gone missing again. And our, our hero, who is, I, I try to avoid the cliche of your typical CIA, Navy SEAL, you know, can kill you seven ways before breakfast, sir, patriot, to somebody who's sort of a, a sarcastic, uh, sardonic, uh, genius hacker from California who's an NSA contractor, but he's living under the name of his a, a best friend who was killed in an explosion that was meant for him after he had hacked a Bilderberg Illuminati server. So he's basically living under on, on the uh, undercover. He's living on the run. He has a network of, of uh, internet informants that this Sylvia has helped him gather. And the Sylvia is now leading him to the next step of what the Sylvia is. So at, when the Sylvia decodes end time prophecy, frankly, none of the other characters really quite understand what that means. They first think that the program is broken. Then they start to realize it's actually on to something, but they just haven't quite figured it out yet. The Sylvia now leads them, leads our, our hero into a, a situation where he discovers two true stories. The one true story is that the Ark of the Covenant that was in Ethiopia for 2,600 years, in January 21, 750 men, women, and children were massacred trying to protect it before it was stolen and sold on the black market. That's true. I, yeah. um, the second, that'll connect to a second Ark. Um, in the 1960s, there was a copper scroll found outside of Qumran, which is on the Dead Sea. Um, and, uh, and, 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 
in that scroll were 64 locations where uh, pre-Babylonian priests had hidden billions of dollars of temple treasures. And the 64th location was a second copper scroll that described where Jeremiah hid the Ark of Testimony made by Moses. For 50 years, no one's been able to figure out any of those locations. Um, many have tried. Six or seven years ago, an American actually decoded all 64 locations underneath the ruins of Qumran itself. And it was confirmed by an Israeli archaeology and antiquities group, Metal Scan and Survey. Um, and so now we have the potential for two arcs coming to play in a modern day. And in my book, I speculate who got, who bought the Ark in the black market, who might want to get to the Ark underneath Qumran, and um, how um, all of that would play into a political, a peace deal that turns into political theater. <laughs> when the FBI first came to my, my house, my wife and I had only been married a few years at that point. And so her, she was freaked out. What did you do? What did you do? And I, but I, my response was more like, yes, I nailed it. You know? <laughs> um, and so when the C, so when that happened and then the, the CNN article came out, I, I thought, you know, I'm, this is something I have to write about. And so rather than writing about it in a non-fictional sense to say, here's what the, the kinds of things the government is working on. Here's how it impacts people and why we should be concerned. I, I took the Dan Brown approach. I, I said, I, I want to I build fun characters that people really like, and I want to put them through these horrendous situations where they discover these things or at the spearhead of these things, and through fictional narrative, uh, basically talk about these real concerns. Well, and, and when you look back on these experiences, you're in your, your early 20s. At the time, I... I was probably in my 30s. I'm, I'm older okay. than I look. I, I, oh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm retired now. So oh, wow. most of the, this became my full-time mission. Okay. So I started taking courses on how to write well. I started trying to figure out how to go from writing great PowerPoints and one-page executive briefs to writing full-length novels, how to do character development. Um, and then I started doing more research to saying, well, if I knew what I knew then, what's the current research tell me now? And I started taking all of that. I have mountains of, of research papers and hundreds of files in my, my, my system. And I take that and I basically use that as fodder for the books. And that's when I started writing. So I actually completed Curse of Cortez first. Then I wrote Swarm. But I finished Swarm about halfway through 2020. And the election, 2020 election, was so stressful and, and so anxiety raised. Now, I understand you're from Canada. Yes, I am. And I have a financial planning background. So you understand some of the economic issues that we're facing right now. When I was writing about the, the political crisis as part of the story in, in Swarm, I had all my beta readers, my even my wife said, okay, forget waiting on an agent. You need to just self-publish this. Uh-huh. And it went well. So I had, I started creating a lot of fans. Then I followed up with the last arc, which deals with, from a prophetic sense, uh, carries through to the third temple scenarios. And one of the reasons I chose to have this AI program decode prophecy was for two reasons. It allowed me, actually maybe three, it allowed me to really talk about climate, population, uh, weapon systems, politics, false religious movements, all of these things that uh, the pandemic at the time that relate to prophetic, you know, to prophecies, 
but do so without going into a lot of heavy dogma and and doctrine and, and things of that nature to make them to kind of make it a little bit more acceptable to somebody who might be agnostic, for example, mm-hmm. and okay. basically take it down to a here's facts. Here's what was said. Here's what's going on. Is there a correlation? And at one point in time, when I was with oil companies, I actually became intrigued with this. I was actually reading a National Geographic article about the fish stocks, loss of fish stocks on all the major fishing grounds around the world because of population growth and everything else and overfishing. And I remember a prophecy about that a third of the fish would die, that we basically Mm -hmm. would lose a third of the fish of the sea. And I realized that that National Geographic was telling me that, well, this has already occurred. And so Mm -hmm. what I did was I built... I took the approach that an AI might take, which is take statistical analysis, probab- uh, probability mathematics, um, huge databases from the ge- our geology group uh, at the oil company about his- uh, geolo- geologic history. I was a history student, so I could look at other things. And I started putting together a <clears throat> complex probability model saying, well, what, what's the probability of this one event happening? Okay, what's the probability of this event plus this event happening and this event and this event? And I I ended up coming to a essentially one in one point four trillion that against random that all of this was random. Well, that struck me not only as a man of faith, but more as also as a man of business to say, well, that's pretty. Those are pretty incredible numbers. Right. And even if my math was wrong by a factor of 10. Right. Pretty incredible. And so I decided that that was a perfect vehicle for me to basically that was an analysis that an AI might type of analysis that an AI uh, might use because they're they're basic um, mathematical models on the linear regression analysis, probabilities, et cetera. But I thought that that was my hook into um, basically creating this character and why and how it would go through and decode something like prophecy. I'm boggled by uh, the diversity and and depth of some of the things that you've experienced. And it's really fascinating, Guy. I, I want to encourage people to go to GuyMorrisBooks.com. Uh, Guy's website is media rich. It has links for buying the books, but it also features highlights and links to all the industry reviews, image libraries, and the actual book location or ARC craft used. So if you're into that sort of thing, and how can you not be? I'm going to be poking around. Uh, I, I kind of, it'll probably take me down a big wormhole. Hey, Guy? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> That's the intent to, to, to hook you into this pseudo reality uh, scenario and, um, and, and do so in an interesting way and, and hopefully have fun. And as I said, I, I've gotten some I've been very pleased with the reviews. Um, I'm always working hard doing research for the next book. Um, but, yeah, I'm hoping that you can drop down that rabbit hole and have fun. No, so I don't know if you realize how engaging you are as an individual to interview. Well, thank you. I, I, th- I'm just, I've had my heads down writing three books and I, I popped up earlier this year and, and thought, you know, I, I probably should start thinking about promotion. Uh, <laughs> and I, I was at the um, Greater Los Angeles uh, Writers Conference and they were talking about different promotional techniques and Podmatch came up as a recommendation in one of those sessions as well as a, a PR person who sets people up to do television spots. Really, marketing is not my my expertise. I, right. I'm learning. 
Um, but I wanted to pull, and, and I knew I needed to pull back a little bit from the next book, to slow down a little bit, do more research, really try to understand what might come next and really try to come back that real cool hook that will, will bring people in. And so I said, well, this is a perfect time for me to start trying to figure out how to introduce myself and what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. thank you for saying that. This is, this is somewhat new for me, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. I do know, though, that I, I, last the beginning of this year, I formed a group called Author Event Network. And the Author Event Network is a legal association here in Washington. And I basically gather other accomplished authors in the area, local authors, and I take them and we basically go to all kinds of big festivals and fairs and events, non, often non-book, um, where you might get five to 50,000 people at the event. And we're out there selling signed editions. So one of the things that I realized that I had to do as part of this was get my head out of the, well, first this happens in the story, then this happens, and oh yeah, there's this other person over here plot sort of description to learn how to actually pitch the books. It's it's fascinating that you found that, but it's also a, an amazing tip for other authors to learn. You know, it's important to get that. And I'm really glad you have. Yeah. And so uh, a lot of authors, we've got about 40 authors in the group now. We just started a Portland chapter just about a week ago. We kicked it off. Um, and for each of these authors, as, as an author, we spend 95% of our time sitting behind a desk, either researching or writing or editing or something. And, you know, we think, okay, well, an Amazon ad or maybe a BookBub ad or this kind of ad. And, and I found that most of those didn't return, give me a return on my investment. I was spending way more on the advertising than I was getting in sales. Yeah. Whereas when I go to these events and I actually engage with readers, I find that I can sell a lot of books. It's um, all about engagement. You need to be talking to people. People want to know the author and the writer of this amazing adventure you've taken them on. You yeah. know, they've invested in your your book literature, however you want to call it, your research. And I can I can see a lot of um, other people who are interested in history and interested in uncovering, you know, maybe a little bit of the dirt uh that uh, whether we believe it or not i mean some people don't believe there is any so there's that but i i can definitely see that you can engage on so many different levels uh not only from your writing and the characters that you've created but also from your experience mm -hmm. so I, th I think there's a lot of play in this for you i'm hoping i'm really hoping i'm, I'm as i said I'm, I'm having a lot of fun i'm, I'm enjoying these the 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 podcast uh, approach and because it gives me a chance to do what i do um somewhat at the the um the events but i get to talk about without even saying the plot of the book i get to talk about what are the amazing fun things that you'll learn in the book and that's just the beginning of, of your adventure and and that's yeah. for me that's a lot of fun i i yeah. really love the things i discover and I, I, I started telling people, for me, the best stories in the world are not just stories that are created, but stories are, that are created based on true stories that are discovered. And if you look at like the Dan Brown and, and, and a lot of the Tom Clancy's and you look at um, Robert Ludlum and, and uh, Missionaries Hawaii and Tolstoy's um, War and Peace and, and Mark Twain and Agatha Christie, all of the great authors are based on stories that they discovered that they fictionalized. Yeah. And uh, I realized that, that I, that's where I wanted to kind of find my niche.
thank you very much for your time today. Jennifer, thank you so much. This has been my pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, like, follow, and share. And we always love reviews. Until next time, thanks for listening. A big thank you to Visibility Pod for taking over the management of our podcast production from creating and uploading podcasts to doing the editing, scheduling the interviews, coordinating with guests, creating additional content, managing our social platforms and distribution of our content and Jennifer's guesting and hosting. Thank you, Visibility Pod, for all your services and management of our podcast.